Hashem Hashem Naseh V'Natzliach, Shiur Torah, Bukhim Abayim. We are back here in our uh, series of the uh, Jewish intimacy based on the uh, Sefer, uh, the Kuntres by the Ramban, Nachmanides, called the Geret HaKodesh, also based on the uh, translation by our dear friend Rav Yaakov Bar Nachman. Uh, tonight's Shiur will be for the Refuah Shlema, for Rabbanit Levana Bat Sara, Rab Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sara Bat Anat, Avi Mori David Ben Nesriya, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora, Naomi Bat Sara, and also for the Atzlachar Abba for Marsha Bat Julie, Ayla Bat Marsha, Sami Ben Marsha, Sephas Ben Marsha, Alexander Ben Marsha, Louis Ben Marsha, Nathanel Ben Avraham and all of Am Yisrael, all the righteous Noahides, especially the ones that continue to contribute and become uh, partners with our organization and all the good things that uh, Baruch Hashem we're doing. Uh, quick update on the uh, campaign. We only have another week or so before uh, the big event here in South Florida, the Chizuk event. You're all welcome to come. It's free. There's a lot of gifts waiting for you. And Bezot Hashem, a very good Shiur Torah. This is next week on the 27th of July here in South Florida at the Hilton. Anyone that uh, needs information, go to bhchizuk.org. B-H, B as in Bezot, H as in Hashem, C-H-I-Z-U-K.org. And you could uh, RSVP, you could also sponsor if you'd like the Shiur, if you want us to mention your name uh, before the Shiur or you simply want to be a sponsor and have a share in every one of the mitzvot that comes out of that shiur forevermore, certainly a good investment. But uh, also lots of gifts for all of you that are uh, coming. I know there's already several people coming from New York, from uh, different states, not just from Florida, Baruch Hashem. So with that, uh, we have that event. We have the event also in Eretz Yisrael in just another couple of weeks. Baruch Hashem, the rabbinical alignment... Uh, the rabbinical lineup is full of G'dolei Ador, as I mentioned just the other night. Uh, anyone that hasn't watched the uh, quick video that we had about uh, the event, uh, we just posted it a couple of days ago. You can see the, uh, the great rabbis that are going to be part of it. Literally, a lineup of G'dolei Ador surrounding a little person like me <laughs> in there uh, that are going to be speaking in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, and uh, Bezot Hashem, it's going to be an extraordinary event, Baruch Hashem. Uh, we are, uh, uh, you know, trying to do as much as we can to accommodate everybody, including, including the people that are only speaking uh, English, even though most of the event is going to be in Hebrew. Uh, we're trying to see if we can get a translator that is going to translate the event with headphones and, uh, you know, for all the English speakers. Uh, so this is also part of the things we're working on. We're not sure if it's going to happen yet or not, but uh, we got a quote from one place. We're just looking for a good translator. To, uh, to be able to do the job, uh, uh, which obviously means not just someone that speaks Hebrew and English but uh, and has a command of the language, but also has a command of the Torah because the, uh, the issues at hand are not going to be, uh, you know, simple translation of English, uh, uh, Hebrew-English. Uh, but certainly we are uh, looking to uh, do a lot. Uh, any of you that are looking to uh, take share in this extraordinary Kiddush Hashem, uh, this uh, extraordinary... Um, Kavod for the Torah, which is really the main purpose of the event. You want to contribute, by all means, you could just simply donate on the website. Uh, I know there's a lot of different things that we need to do for the event. There's the advertising, there's the people, there's the staff, there's the food, there's a lot of things. 
Uh, don't ask me how much things cost. If you want to contribute, contribute. You don't want to contribute. You want to attend for free. No problem. You can attend for free. There's just not enough time in a day uh, to go over every single little thing. Anyone that wants to contribute can simply contribute on the website uh, and uh, like you usually do. And you could simply tell us you want this to be towards the event. It's going to cost a fortune, Bezal Hashem, but for the sake of the honor of the Torah and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, there's no price that's enough. Uh, so uh, Bezal Hashem, this is going to be a very, very important event. Uh, and uh, not only for the, our organization, but uh, for, the, uh, for, for Klal Israel, uh, especially any one of you that are familiar with what's going on with the world of impurity, from Christianity, the missionaries, uh, what they're doing lately uh, in America, in, uh, in, in, uh, in the UK, in Israel, in other places. Uh, we need as much uh, uh, Kedusha and, and honor for the Torah as we could possibly get. So with that being said, we're going to continue our series based on the Egeret HaKodesh. And uh, the one thing that uh, I've uh, seen uh, that has been uh, very positive from this series is that many people, both men and women, uh, young and old, single and married, uh, are invigorated by this uh, series of the Egeret HaKodesh. Some people are crying about the fact that they uh, you know, went through uh, an entire lifetime without knowing this information and they already have you know, several kids. Uh, some people are uh, crying about the fact that uh, they're able to do this and uh, it's still early on for them. Uh, either they haven't gotten married or they're still relatively young and they're still looking to bring more children to the world. They're still uh, uh, active uh, with their spouse. So, Baruch Hashem, this is a fantastic thing. Uh, but of course, as, uh, as we'll go through the series, we'll realize how this is relevant to everyone. This is uh, certainly something that every person... Uh, you know, can uh, benefit from, uh, you know, whether it's uh, for the sake of bringing holy children to the world or it's for simply uh, bringing holiness to the bedroom, uh, to, to, to the intimacy between, uh, you know, one and their, and their spouse. Uh, whether a person is, uh, you know, able to have children or not, still they could benefit uh, from this extraordinary uh, teachings. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the things that I uh, uh, heard from uh, Rav Gidon ben Moshe, one of the uh, great Gdolei uh, Adol that's going to be part of our event, and uh, you know, Rav Ephraim's Rosh Kolel, uh, he uh, is uh, one of the uh, head Talmidim uh, of Rav Tzion Abba Shaul Alav Shalom, and Rav Gidon Ben Moshe is uh, very well known around the world. He speaks around the world. He obviously has several kolels, Baruch Hashem, which uh, we uh, we have a uh, partnership in. And uh, Rav Gidon once told us that uh, something really shocking where, um, you know, they ask him to speak in different places. And also because he is part of the Bedin of, uh, of the uh, Israel itself, uh, he's the Av Bedin in Yerushalayim, uh, he, they ask him to sometimes speak in the army uh, at the IDF. And uh, he said that uh, one time they asked him to come speak to a huge group of uh, men. Uh, most of which were completely, completely secular, uh, grew up, you know, lefty, liberal, uh, kibbutzim, really no connection whatsoever to the Torah whatsoever, which is really hard to imagine. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it still uh, still exists. I mean, the uh, the atheist Zionist, uh, you know, is still among us, unfortunately, uh, and they work very, very hard to make the uh, the world of Torah so distasteful. 
and so ugly in the eyes of people that are ignorant about it that those ignorant people never even delve into it never try but because there are certain protocols within the government and within the uh, the country itself they uh, look for uh, at least to show that they're participating and uh, to show friendliness if you will uh, when it's convenient for them and one time they uh, sit at the IDF the Israeli Defense Force they decided that they want to have a, uh, a, a course uh, given to a huge group of soldiers uh, some of them generals some of them really you know high up in the uh, in the ladder of the army itself you know been there for many years and they want a course about family purity about the uh, family purity which is you know the uh, nuclear uh, 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 you know reactor in, in, the, in the Jewish religion I mean, without family purity there is no purity in marriage uh, and it's not just uh, you know a uh, you know woman going to the mikveh once a month and being pure but it's also what happens uh, and when she's not pure and so on and uh, they asked Rav Gidon ben Moshe uh, you know the world-renowned expert in the topic to come and give this lecture and uh, Rav Gidon asked them who who are these people that I'm going to be giving them this intense course uh, you know that's very very detailed and they said oh you know everyone practically is you know does not keep anything uh not shabbat not nothing zero and perhaps we thought you're gonna teach them about this subject as a for for informational purposes we don't said listen i mean I, I appreciate you inviting me but these are the type of people that perhaps i can teach them about emuna about that uh, the fact that god created them that there is a god that runs the world and is constantly uh, overseeing everything i don't necessarily think that teaching them about family purity is uh, is, is really the uh, the way you start they said listen this is after many meetings inside the uh, administration we decided you're gonna have an X amount of time to teach them about family purity if you come you'll teach them if not simple that uh, time slot is just gonna be them sitting in a huge auditorium and doing nothing so you choose we're not changing the course real Rashaim that care less about the Torah but they simply want to make it look like they uh you know they they care now of course Akadosh Baruch Hu is the one and only that runs the world he's the one that decides who what when and how and every single thing that's out there and of course as I always try to tell people that uh either are unaware of the significance and the, and the importance of teaching Kedusha to Klal Israel from small to big whether it's a six seven eight year old uh boy or it's a 18 year old uh, young man or it's a, uh, a woman or it's a uh, people that are in their marriage ages and, and and beyond teaching the issue the matters of kedusha which is you know pertaining to family purity pertaining to morality and immorality not wasting seed watching your eyes and also the issues of kedusha as far as how to be uh intimate uh in the appropriate and holy way according to the torah all of these uh, subjects are unfortunately very uncommon uh, in the uh, in the world of uh, Torah today, as far as uh, speeches are concerned. As I'm sure you are already aware, I have endless messages from people saying they've never heard any of this in their life, and they've been watching or listening to Shurim for many years. And Baruch Hashem, uh, they're tuning in. 
but in the world of Torah, you'll actually see that it's quite the opposite, meaning that if you look at the books, uh, then you'll see that uh, many Chachamim, uh, endless amount of number of Chachamim have discussed the issues of Kedusha and family purity and, and, and uh, a prohibition of wasting seed and immorality and adultery and anything that's pertaining to it across the spectrum of the entire Torah, whether it's the written Torah, the oral Torah, the uh, Rishonim, the Achronim. So it's very, very, uh, you know, uh, heavily discussed subject uh, in the books, but uh, perhaps uh, not many have uh, the uh, desire, willpower, or, or merit to discuss the subject, and we always thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving us at least the merit to, uh, to, to try to uh, cover this topic extensively. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, Rav Gidon ben Moshe has, uh, 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 you know, knew already from his whole life that Torah is pure, but uh, this event surprised him because, as I've told everybody, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us the Torah, He gave everybody the same exact Torah. We, st- we all start with Bereshit and we all go into Noach. And the reality is that after we all learn about the creation of the world, we all learn about how Hashem destroyed the world because the world was full of immorality, prostitution, homosexuality, and all types of filth. So right off, it doesn't make a difference whether you're a first grader, six-year-old little boy or girl, or you're 16, or you're 36, or you're 86, you're all going to have the same uh, uh, connection to the Torah where that Torah is going to be exactly identical. It's going to start with Genesis. It's going to with Bereshit. Then it's going to go on to Noach and, of course, the rest of the Torah. And everyone learns about Hashem creating the world and then destroying the world and then restarting again. And because of evil, because of uh, immorality, because of all types of things that are forbidden. And, of course, the Holy Torah that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave all of us takes into account that the six-year-old, the eight-year-old, the ten-year-old mind perhaps may not be able to digest the magnitude of the uh, of what's actually what's happening here in this creation and needless to say in the destruction you have giant people that uh, reach the heavens melting uh, you know from the uh, from the uh, flood literally melting and, and becoming fluid uh, horrific amount of uh, death and destruction and it wasn't even the first disaster that came to the world because a generation before that Hashem flooded uh, a, a third of the world the point being is is that the average child that reads about the Mabul you know is even if he reads the Midrashim even if he reads all of the different stories his beautiful pure neshama digest what Hashem allows him to digest meaning that no one should ever fear that this story of horror of complete annihilation of mankind complete annihilation of 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 the world at large is too much for this little boy or little girl to handle needless to say it's not too much for any teenager to handle the uh, the stories of the immorality that took place and how wasting seed was one of the primary reasons why Hashem destroyed the world. Uh, and no one really that, that knows a little bit of Torah stops themselves from teaching about Parashat Noach. No one thinks twice about teaching a group of adults about the destruction of the world or the creation of the world. In fact, the creation of the world is one of the most heavily covered subjects in lectures because it's so interesting. Even though it doesn't necessarily have as much impact on your day-to-day life, as the destruction of the world does, 
but nonetheless it's people do not refrain from teaching these subjects to adults little do we know that when it comes to the children the books that are written about this topic are actually better than many of the lectures that are given about this topic which is unbelievable i have found the 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 books children books about this topic of of noah the creation of the world the destruction of the world and of course everything thereafter uh being much better in children's books than in children's lectures but nonetheless akadosh Baruch already took it into account that those beautiful pure and young neshamot are going to be able to absorb what they need to absorb at that time and if they go back to that same lecture or that same book or that same section in the torah a year later five years later 10 years later 20 years later surely their neshama that has grown is going to be able to build on that pre-existing knowledge and that's generally how the torah is hence the reason why you teach torah like the torah was given you teach it to everybody you don't uh, try to shortchange anyone because you decided that they can't handle it but what happened is is that in the liberal world and especially the anti-torah world they decided that certain people cannot handle the truth cannot handle the torah cannot handle religiosity and you literally have a couple of generation of ignorant people that do not even know what family purity is so when Rav Gidon ben Moshe came into this huge auditorium full of soldiers and generals and gave them a lecture about family purity he didn't really expect much i mean he didn't expect anyone to just stop and put on a tzitzit and say i'm doing tshuva he simply said okay at least i'll try to sneak in a few little bits of uh emuna in there and yirat shamayim in there but you know generally speaking you have to stay uh honest to the uh to the uh, uh deal and teach them about family purity and to his surprise at the end of that lecture one of the senior generals there uh stands up and uh says to the rabbi and there was other rabbanim over there i have something to say and i i want everyone to hear and of course everyone gets quiet and he says Kvodarav, i am very angry with you in fact i'm angry and upset with all of the rabbis of course uh Rav Gidon says what did I do now I mean what are they pinning on me now that uh, I did I just gave a lecture that they wanted what, what he's thinking himself he's waiting to see what is he upset about what could he be upset about and then this general this precious Jewish neshama that does not even keep the basics says to the rabbi I'm very upset at you rabbis that you did not make enough effort to come to my community to come to this uh, 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 army, to come to this uh, uh, areas, to come to everywhere that me and my friends live in. Because I already have three, four kids, and everybody else here already has a few kids. What is this information going to do for us now about family purity? You're telling me that all of my children are Bnei Nida, they're the sons of Anida, that their Neshama is uh, problematic and everything you're saying that would happen with a problematic neshama where the kid comes to the world and has no respect hates uh hates torah hates the truth uh, calls us by their first name i'm experiencing it all of us are experiencing it. all of us are suffering with our kids what are we gonna do now why didn't you guys come to us why didn't you rabbis come to us many years ago we were still young of course the rabbis did come and they came to everywhere that they possibly could but 
Rav Gidon ben Moshe couldn't help himself but literally cry for this Jew and all of these Jews that they had this misfortune. This misfortune, of course, due to their own sins, due to their own decisions, whether during this life or the previous one, or both, that uh, they didn't learn Torah and didn't learn the basics of how to build a holy nation, a holy family, and needless to say, a holy life. And now they all have to pay the price for it. The good news is, Rabotai, is that although whatever came out came out already whatever is there is there already there's not much you can do uh about the initial uh, uh part of creating this neshama if it's already out there in the world you have a child they're a beautiful kid they're they're good they're bad they're nasty they're uh, you know geniuses whatever they are there's not much you can do for them once they're out other than try to at least now influence them to educate themselves according to the Torah, send them to a uh, you know a good yeshiva, a good uh, Jewish seminary for the girls, teach them whatever you're learning, have them watch uh, these shiurim and others. At the very least, you'll give them the same opportunity that you're giving yourself. But the good news is is that this it's not too late for anyone that hasn't come to this world, and and that means both the babies that perhaps Hashem will give you the merit to bring into the world in the future, whether that be tomorrow or next week or, or, or a year from now, or it's simply the uh, the nitzotzot kedusha, the, the sparks of holiness that will be created each and every single time a couple is together. Because even those holy sparks, even those holy sparks that are created from the seed of the man, that's uh, that's uh, going into his wife. If they're done the right way, then they still create precious neshamot, holy neshamot that will come into the world. Maybe not through uh, your uh, uh, your bodies, but certainly Hashem will take those neshamot and put them somewhere else that will create good in the world. And all of us can, uh, I think, uh, agree that uh, we can certainly uh, uh, be happier and uh, have a better world if there was a, a few extra thousand uh, precious neshamot in the world, if uh, if not more. With all of the tum'ah and the impurity that's in the media and, and, and everywhere else that's out there, we could certainly use more holy neshamot. So the key is to understand it, that it's really never too late for you know what hasn't been produced. The question is, why? Why do I need to do this aside from creating this neshama when in reality it already seems like this is really too difficult? A person that uh, learned how to procreate, how to uh, be intimate, uh, and, and the endless amount of other words that this, uh, this topic has in the, uh, in, in the street language, uh, you know, a person learned how to do it probably from some magazine or some filthy blue film uh, perhaps from a few things that uh, they heard from their friends or classmates. Most people learn about the topic of intimacy between them and their wife, uh, you know, usually from some magazine, usually from some movie. Uh, and perhaps some were fortunate enough to have a kala class and a chatan class before they got married. But even then, many times people are not really sure what's being said. As we said in the first lecture of this event, some you know, horrifying examples, real-life examples of, you know, religious, very, very uh, holy uh, couples that uh, went to a chatan and a kala class and simply didn't understand. Didn't understand what the uh, teacher is talking about and were making mistakes 
in uh, in their in their intimacy for uh, a very long time, and suffering due to it, and Baruch Hashem, at least uh, not suffering permanently. But nonetheless, it's a uh, you know just because someone goes to a chatan or a kalak class doesn't necessarily mean that they always know what uh, needs to be known, uh, especially when it comes to holiness. Sometimes you'll learn uh, the basic movements of certain things, but uh, generally speaking. It's a uh, certainly a place where the world can use more holy people to teach holiness. Uh, the key is to understand is that when the average person learns about what the uh, uh, Chachamim call, especially the, the Yavits that called it something that you can literally get to the highest level of holiness through than anything else, even more, for, more than learning Torah. Like, if somebody would have told you that you could literally become the holiest person on planet Earth by learning Torah, it's easy to understand. But when someone tells you, a tells you that you can get to the highest level of holiness through your intimacy with your spouse, it's hard to fathom such a thing until you start reading and understanding what the Ramban was talking about, what the Chachamim were talking about. So the average person doesn't necessarily think of holiness when they think about intimacy perhaps they think okay it's holy to maybe bring kids it's holy to be modest before or after but the act itself why why do i need to be holy and if you're gonna say okay bring holy kids well not everybody's looking for more kids i spoke to somebody the other day and had uh six kids and when he told me he has six kids i said oh can you meaning may you have many more and he made a joke and he said, oh, hold on a second before you give me such a blessing. You have many more. I said, I'm in. Uh, you know, why not? But of course, maybe if you have six kids versus have three kids, maybe it's a little. <laughs> but the key is to understand that, you know, not everybody necessarily wants more kids. And of course, it's a mistake. Uh, more kids, more blessings, more kids, more, more, more goodness in the world, especially if those kids are growing up in holiness. But again, the average person is not necessarily going to be inspired to become holy in the most intimate act of their life, yet the act that they could be are more likely to become the most animalistic in at the same time. The act that they're usually let themselves go with all of the crazy thoughts that people have today, all the crazy, you know, uh, horrendous behavior that a person has in their mind usually are expressed behind those closed doors where you know outside of the bedroom in in the boardroom in the office in the uh, synagogue this person could look like the most respectable person on planet earth but as soon as that door closes literally you have a lion coming out that uh, has three heads and uh and and you're not even sure what to do with this thing is he going to kill the person is he uh, going to eat them what is he going to do you're not really sure and unfortunately this is both for males and females you can sometimes have women that seem like they're the most righteous people in the world but as soon as the doors are closed they want their husbands to do something they saw in some filthy movie and uh they, they have in their mind and they want their husband to be like three people so of course the 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 although there are certain things that are allowed it doesn't necessarily always mean that it's recommended although there are certain things that are permissible it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing to do and of course although there are certain things that say just say you shouldn't do you can actually get a permission to do it and even a recommendation to do it as we've had multiple times where we've advised certain couples that yes although 
the Gemara says that this is not exactly uh, uh, the, the most ideal thing to do between a man and his wife. You need to do it. Why? Because this will lead to good things in your life. Whether it be the husband learning more Torah or this or that, there are certain things that you have to analyze by case by case basis. You can't just say rule of thumb, everything is allowed or everything is not allowed. So you have to be smart, not just in the uh, uh, in Torah, but also know the people. But the key is to understand also is that if we're talking to the general public, we have to address the general public. And if you tell the general public that, listen, you can do this and thereby create more holiness and your kids will be more holy you're already excluding a large part of the crowd that either does not want to have any more kids cannot have any more kids is not in a position to have any kids if you tell them okay then uh, perhaps <clears throat> this is going to be uh you know something that uh is uh, another way to serve hashem and they're going to say why how what does he care about even Bil'am Rasha asked this question, what, Hashem looks at uh, the issues between man and his wife, and the answer is yes, because this is a time where HaKadosh Baruch Hu sees if one of the holy neshamot that has been waiting in the heavenly body called Guf, if he's going to be able to allow that neshama to come into the world through that act, because if the act is holy, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu can take one of those special neshamot that he's been waiting eagerly waiting to bring into the world another gdolador another huge tzaddikah another huge tzaddik that hashem has literally been looking at and waiting for the opportunity to bring him into the world but he's waiting for a holy act he's waiting for a holy act so your average person will say yeah that's cool but what who says that's going to happen to me and the point i'm trying to say is that when the average person learned about this topic through filthy sources, through atheists, heretics, promiscuous people, zonot, and the like, to tell them to switch and give up all of that just for the sake of bringing that holy neshama, perhaps we need to do a little more work in order to be more convincing. And Be'ezat Hashem, we're going to try to do that in the words of the Ramban to see if there is a little bit more motivation a little bit more inspiration to do it because when we look at the world around us we see a lot of sorry people a lot of people that are sorry about what they brought into the world people that are regretting the the, the fruits of their labor whether the fruits of their labor is horrific children that they really wish weren't in this world or the fruits of their labor is already a few generations of horrific people or it's a fruits of their labor is a bad business, a bad marriage, a bad, a lot of things. People are, generally speaking, very miserable about the decisions they've made into the world, even if they walk around with a big smile and a, uh, you know, and a very fancy car and watch and house and they have all the money. The reality is when you find out the things that we're privy to find out about people's interpersonal lives, you, you realize that it's rare, very, very rare to ever find a person that does not live with a life full of regrets. In fact, the only happy people I've ever met in my life, and I've met thousands and thousands of people in my life, both you know, through the world of Torah as well as in the world of business, and I've yet to find a single person, a single person that is happy if they were not glued to the Torah. Glued to the Torah, 
glued their them their family people that are not glued to the Torah have no concept what happiness is they look for happiness in bank accounts they look for happiness in business enterprises they look for happiness in business dealings and in, in, in hobbies in friendships in everything but the Torah and the truth is that the only place you can find happiness is in the Torah not just through learning it but also living it and not just living it if you're not learning it because if you're living it without learning it then in essence becomes robotic so the Ramban is in essence going into all of our most private lives the times that you are in essence you've learned we've learned is a time that you can simply do whatever you please to do fulfill every awkward and strange desire that a person has and he says I'm coming into that bedroom and I'm taking over and telling you it's really worth it for you to stop acting like an animal in fact you should actually consider being holy the complete polar opposite and he tells a student nearly 800 years ago that this subject is a holy subject the subject of intimacy in a marriage is a very holy subject in fact intimacy outside of a marriage is one of the things that a kadosh who detests more than anything else as we learned from this week's parasha parashat pinchas where kadosh who says that pinchas ben elazar ben aron Cohen, he took a staff or a spear and killed the leader of the Shimon tribe someone that was already a few hundred years old but surely was living as if he was 20 because he was desecrating Hashem's name in public by his behavior with a non-Jewish woman a Midianite woman named Cosby and this brought the wrath of God into the world to the point where Kadosh Baruch Hu simply decided that he was going to annihilate the nation and after Pinchas ben Elazar saw that this is one of the root causes of the great desecration of God's name he simply put an end to it knowing that he was going to die as a result and never even contemplating the possibility that Hashem was going to save him through a series of miracles and actually turn him into a Kohen Gadol and eventually into someone that is Eliyahu Anavi. Now, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Kohen is someone that Akadosh Bahu made a permanent covenant with called Briti Shalom. Shalom is another name for the Shekhinah, where that Shekhinah is literally resting upon Pinchas uh, until this day. He never died. And for what? because he took vengeance before his God he took vengeance before his God now notice that the onkelos specifies that instead of translating it how the literal English translation is for which is for his God Onkelos says that he took vengeance before his God why before instead of for lest you think that any act that Pinchas did or that you do is for the sake of God 
God doesn't benefit from our actions. Everything you do, you're doing before God as your servitude of God. He doesn't need the act, you do. He doesn't benefit from it, you do. And you see that Onkelos and many other Chachamim take an extra effort to clarify even the basic translation in such a simple manner to know that there is nothing you can do for God, but rather for yourself and your servitude of God. And one that thinks that he's doing something for God will ultimately lead to the conclusion that God needs whatever he's doing for him and turn himself into the God and God into the into the servant. So now, Onkelos says that he took vengeance before God. And what was this vengeance that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted? Next, another vengeance, which is he commands Moshe Rabbeinu to tell Am Yisrael, go and oppress the Midianites and you shall strike them because they are oppressors to you. HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Moshe Rabbeinu, go to war with the Midianites, fight them. Onkelo says, what does it mean? Strike them, kill them. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but in fact, the Chachamim say that this is the second time in the entire Torah where HaKadosh Baruch Hu specifically commands us to kill the enemy rather than just simply hurt the enemy. When we fought the other enemies, whether it was Sichon or Og or some of the others, Hashem did not command us to kill the enemy, but rather to fight them. And that was it. And Am Yisrael is a, the most humane nation in history. And what they would do is simply hurt the enemy to the point where they would die on their own. This is also the reason why after the war is when HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe Rabbeinu to teach Am Yisrael about impurity and purity. Why didn't he teach them about this in previous uh, uh, times? Because in the previous wars, the soldiers did not kill anybody directly. They hurt them enough, but then left, allowing them to die on their own. So they never were exposed to dead bodies. Only after this war with Amalek and with the Midianites did Am Yisrael need to know about purity and impurity because they actually were commanded to kill the Midianites. The Midianites and the Amalekites were the only ones that Hashem commanded us to kill. Why? Because, says the Torah, they oppressed you. What does it mean, oppressed you? They caused you to sin. They caused you to sin. Yeah, but what about Sichon and Og and all of the other wicked people that attacked us and wanted to kill us? In the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the murder of a, the, the killing of a body is not even close to the significance than causing someone to sin. As Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai teaches, Gadol, one who causes another person to sin is much, much more dangerous and has a much more serious punishment than someone who murders another person. Because if he murders a person that's a righteous person, that person is going to heaven. But if he causes a person to sin, that person is going to gain home. Heaven is not suffering. Heaven is full of pleasure. 
Genom is full of suffering. So causing a person to sin is the most horrific thing that a person can do and therefore the Midianites had to be completely annihilated, killed. Don't have any mercy on them. Why? They tried to murder your eternity by causing you to sin by bringing the imadist non-Jewish women to sin with the Jewish men. And therefore, after that, bringing them to also to idolatry. Also, the reason why the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says that when a Jew is intimate with a uh, non-Jewish woman, it's or not, you know, Jewish with a non-Jewish man, it's the equivalent of someone that's bringing a sacrifice to an idol. Because we learn it from here that the connection of uh, you know promiscuity between a Jew and a non-Jew leads to idolatry. Now, of course, many people that are intermarried or they're in relationships where they don't call it marriage, but they uh, are acting like they're married, don't necessarily see the connection between idolatry and the uh, and and the, uh, their, them being with a non-Jewish person and them being Jewish. They don't see it. And all I can say to you is, you don't see it yet. And it's it's just a matter of time. The first time there's an argument between a, uh, a Jewish person and a non-Jewish person, you know, you'll, uh, you know, depending on the size of the argument, you'll see that this will suddenly make their non-Jewish friend more religious in their idolatrous practices, more demanding in you uh, going to their church and to their, and, and their, their holidays and so on. This is not a one-time thing. This is something that uh, I've seen with my own eyes with many, many people where they're surprised that all of a sudden their wife for the last 10 years that's not Jewish all of a sudden wants them to be religious Christian. And she herself is not Christian, uh, religious Christian. She herself was non-religious Christian. And that's why they thought that marriage could work. And there's endless amount of stories that are told about the Holocaust where the people that were online to being annihilated by the evil German Nazis. How did they get exposed? They were married to non-Jewish women. So why why would uh, why would the uh, you know, Nazis think of anything? Who exposed them? Their own spouses, their own husbands, their own wives went to the Nazis and told them, "Yeah, yeah, my husband, my wife is Jewish." Literally, you have stories, real stories of men wanting to die while they couldn't wait to die because of how painful it was to see their non-Jewish wife holding their non-Jewish baby while standing next to the Nazi soldiers waiting for their husband to die. How all of a sudden you became religious? This is one of the klalim in the world. This is one of the rules in the world. Esav sonet Yaakov. Esav hates Yaakov. Now, of course, there are many non-Jews that are fantastic people. Some of them are in the process of converting to Judaism, some of them are righteous Noahides, and of course, they're not a uh, uh, people that hate the Jews, but that's usually so long as they're not intimate with the Jews. The second that they become intimate with the Jews, all of a sudden, they become like everybody else. And in fact, could even be worse than everybody else. Why? Because once you cause Jewish people to sin, you become the enemy of God. You become no different than Amalek. You become no different than Midian. And the reality is that this is a person that could be very, very nice before that act and literally become Amalek a day later. Why? Because again, it all depends on who are you working for. Are you working for God or are you working for the Satan? When you're causing Jewish people to sin, you're working for the Satan, not for God. When you're working for Hashem, you're doing everything you possibly can to get Jewish people to get closer to Hashem, not further from Hashem. 
Now, of course, everybody means well. Everybody has good intentions. Everybody has, a, uh, you know, a, a, a ideas or, or, or whatever. The key is to understand that everything has ramifications. And one of the things we learned from Parashat Balak and Parashat Pinchas, that the ramifications of causing Jews to sin specifically with immorality, with, you know, the intimacy between Jews and non-Jews, is detestable in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so much so that he nearly annihilated his chosen people and certainly annihilated the Midianites from the face of the earth as a result of it and made a stamp in the world to let us know what he thinks of it, what he thinks of your non-Jewish boyfriend, what he thinks of your non-Jewish husband, what he thinks of your non-Jewish uh, relationship that, that, that is between a Jew and a non-Jew, what he thinks of that intermarriage. So again, you have a Hashem. He's the one that makes the rules. And he's telling us what his rules look like and what are the ramifications. So now this very same God also told us that when we do want to serve him and we do want to be on the good side, there are certain benefits to doing it. Of course, bringing holy children to the world is one of them. Creating holiness in a relationship is unlike any other greatness in the world. It's something amazing. But also the Ramban says to us that aside from the the obvious, which we'll go into later on to see that it's actually there's many more things that are not so obvious, but also the Ramban is now telling us that there is an additional benefit in it. And he says, surely that you already know and this is a common language among the sages that anytime they bring something new, they say, surely you already know from their humility. And he says, surely you already know that servants tend to imitate the conduct of their masters. Remember that point. Servants tend to imitate the conduct of their masters. If you have a master and he has servants, the longer, the way you identify which one is the most loyal servant, the most committed, the one with the longest tenure, is based on the similarities of that servant's behavior, look, uh, and, and everything else. Language, thought process, the more similar they are to the master, the more you know this person is committed, is loyal, and most importantly, is someone that has been around for a long time. The same you actually see with business. When you, you know, typically when you see corporations, small and big businesses alike, give somebody a promotion to become the new chief executive officer, new president, something, uh, you know, a leading, uh, a leading role within the company. Typically, companies don't get that from outside companies. Typically, they bring them from home. They bring it from within the company. Because they want somebody that doesn't just have a skill, but also someone that has a passion and a commitment for the company itself. And the only way that you can know that is based on their experience. So when you see somebody that's been working for the company for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and is still there, started in the mailroom, and is now one of the managers, that's a person that has made that company, has made that business a key part of their life not just and for for the sake of making a living 
but simply for the for for this for his life himself or her life herself it's it's become part of their life they're part of the culture not just as a member of the culture but a part of actually creating a culture within the company so certainly a person that has been with the company for many years and has shown <clears throat> a good track record of loyalty of expertise of uh, of of a uh, commitment and dedication sacrifice and so on certainly that is the first person in line to take the leading role because not only do you know that this is a person that other people will listen to because he's in essence rubbed elbows and uh, you know and and sweated blood with along with the rest of the people there but also because you know that this person is here to stay this is a person that is married to the company anytime companies bring outside people more times than not those end up being the uh, some of the biggest failures of the company not because the skill is lacking because usually they're actually more skillful than people that are coming from within the firm usually they have outside talents that the company can you know values tremendously that perhaps they don't have within the company already and that's usually the reason why they hire people from outside of the company because of a certain skill set because of a certain ability of some kind but more times than not those abilities those skill sets are not enough to change an entire culture it's rare that they do when they do they can make a very big mark and and, and make a very big success but when they don't usually they create the most colossal losses in the company's history and it's not because of a lack of skill but rather because of a lack of commitment a lack of camaraderie a lack of willing to sacrifice and this is not something you can just get with a uh, a paycheck so it's when you have somebody that's committed whether they're in a business relationship or they're in a marriage or any other type of relationship the uh, even if it's a uh, it's it's the one that we just the ramban is, is bringing a servant and a master the more loyal the servant is the more tenure there's been the more time they've spent the more they've made this master a key part of their life the more you will see that that servant that executive that spouse that child that relationship become literally like a replication of its master they'll start dressing alike speaking alike using the same lingo having the same hobbies the same goals agenda and so on you see that the guy that came in off the street 18 20 years old first job walks into the firm he doesn't have much in common with anybody other than the fact that he wants to make money his hobbies are football and baseball and 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 playstation and girls but if he's with the firm for five years all of a sudden all he can think about is special type of engines and cars and 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 golf outings and uh networking with clients all of a sudden his hobby on the side is creating a new software when six seven years ago he didn't even know how to spell software why he spent enough time with the company where he's becoming more and more like his master like his boss and the same goes with the servant the more he spends time and effort and commitment with the boss the more you will see the boss in the eyes of the servant and that's the first sentence that the ramban 
is starting off with do you know that the servant tends to imitate the conduct of the master of their masters behold god our lord is our master and we are his servants he is holy and there is none holy like him and he commanded us to be holy since he is holy as our sages comment on the verse in the Sifri Parashat Ekev, section 49, and walk in his ways, in the uh, verse in the uh, book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse 9. And you walk in his ways, what does it mean? The sages said, as he is holy, so you shall be holy. As he is gracious, so you shall be gracious as he is compassionate so you shall be compassionate this is also mentioned in the gemara page 14a so here the ramban in this section in the beginning it you're not really sure what does this have anything to do with jewish intimacy you're telling me to be like god god has no body or the likeness of a body what is the connection here? The Gemara in Masechet Kiddushin, page 22b, says that there is a servant, slave, that became a slave due to his stealing and not being able to pay back. Sometimes stealing is simply going into a store and taking whatever you can find sometimes stealing is borrowing money that you know you can't return there's all types of stealing and a person needs to know that if you have stolen money on your account you won't be able to go to heaven until you pay back that money and if you've already died with stolen money in your account you'll have to be reincarnated come back to the world to pay back the person you stole from now that means that that person also has to be reincarnated unless that person is smart enough according to the Torah to forgive the forgive the uh, the loan to forgive the loan that somebody didn't pay them forgive the stolen money that somebody stole from them this is also why the Chafetz Chaim when certain people would steal from his store he would yell at them I forgive you I forgive you I forgive you one time he actually chased somebody in the streets that was stole from him the guy is thinking that the Chafetz Chaim is trying to catch him to get his money back. But the Chafetz Chaim is chasing him so he can tell him and he can make sure that he hears, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. Machulecha, machulecha. Why? Why do I want well, I'm going to come back to this world so this guy can pay me back to Apple. He can pay me back to $1,500. He can pay me back to half a million dollars. For what? Let me go to heaven. If I already worked hard enough to go to heaven, let me go to heaven. What do I need to come back to this world for? Be subject to sins again. Be subject to uh, to risks of, of going again. Home again. Why? But this does not necessarily is not necessarily a forget out of jail free card to assume that uh, the person you stole from is forgive you. So a person that has stolen money on their account, whether Jew or Gentile, you have to return it as soon as possible because who knows how much time you have. Now we've spoken about if a person doesn't know how to return it to a person because that person is no longer in the world and so on that's for another time but the key is to understand is that the Gemara says that somebody became a slave he stole money can't return it 
So the punishment is, and the way they return the money is by becoming a slave. A Jewish slave. And this Jewish slave works for a righteous Jew, not a wicked Jew. And that righteous Jew has rules of how he can treat his slave. If he only has one mattress, he has to give it to the slave. He can't sleep on a mattress and his slave is sleeping on the floor. You can't mistreat him. This is not like slavery, like the uh, they did with uh, uh, you know with uh, with with black people, and they did with Indian people, uh, and they did with uh, or American Indian, I should call them to be more politically correct, uh, or uh, or all other types of uh, slaves. And needless to say, how they did with the Jewish people in Egypt. No, no, it's not the type of slave. A Jewish slave is the Gemara says is like a person that has a Jewish slave has got himself a master. Because he has to be so careful in how he treats this slave that literally it's like having a master. Food, uh, 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 rules, uh, 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 where they sleep, clothing, everything. Even giving him a woman. So the point being is that this person is a slave and the whole point of his slavery is that this is going to help him do tshuva. Not just for the stealing, but also for the desire to steal. He's supposed to learn from his boss, from his master, how to be a righteous person. It's not just, uh, you know, doing things that are demeaning and uh, insulting or anything like that. And many times it's not even allowed to allow uh, a slave to do certain things that are demeaning. Point being is, slavery according to the Torah and slavery according to mankind are a world apart. World apart. But needless to say, it has happened in history and only in Jewish history, where the slave loves his master so much that when the master tells him, okay, you've served your sentence seven years, it's time for you to go. Take care. Thank you for being my slave for all these years. You've served your sentence. Now you're free to go. You're a free man. The Torah says that this slave likes his master loves his master loves the wife that the master gave him and says i don't want to leave i don't want to leave i want to stay a servant forever the torah says if this slave says such a thing he doesn't want to leave refuses to leave wants to stay a servant he has to go through a process where they make a hole in his ear so the gemara asks what did the ear do what does the ear have to do with his decision to be a slave forever instead of being a free man and Torah says this is a commemoration if you will of the fact that this ear heard the voice of God commanding Am Yisrael to be his slaves to be his servants and instead of choosing to fulfill what that ear heard at Mount Sinai and being the servants of God, they chose to be the servants of the servants, the servants of man. Because even your boss, your master, may be a nice guy, but he's also my servant, God says. So you, instead of being the servant of God, the king of kings, you chose to be the servant of one of my servants. So the Ramban says 
that it's ideal for us to know that if you look at a servant, you have to have the right perspective of who, who, what's, who is that servant serving. If that servant is serving someone for a long time and they like what they're doing, they love their master, you will naturally see that servant emulate their master, look like their master, behave like their master. And this is why when Akadosh Baruch Hu sees that we chose to emulate his creation rather than him himself, it's not exactly a happy day. Now, the David Melech, who was an Eved Hashem, he says in Tehilim 113, Verse 1. Alleluia. Alleluia avde Adonai. Alleluia Shem Adonai. Alleluia. Give praise, you servants of Hashem. Praise the name of Hashem. Chachamim ask the Baala Metsudot. This is a. Uh, written a few hundred years ago, the Metsudot David, commentary on Nevi'im uh, and Ketuvim by Rabbi David Al-Tzuler and his son, Rabbi Hillel Al-Tzuler. They wrote commentary on uh, the Nevi'im uh, and Ketuvim and uh, usually somebody that's studying Nach wants to do it you know quickly and and, and get to the uh, uh, clear understanding of the verses we'll go through the commentary of the uh, Baal Metzudot Metzudot David and the Metzudot David says ask a question why did David Amelech when he said Alleluia give praise you servants of God praise the name of Hashem you see here, what is hallelujah? You are praising Hashem, the Yud K. But he said, praise Hashem, give praise, you servants of Hashem. In essence, he said, praise Hashem, but then he retracted, if you will, and said, give praise, you servants of Hashem. Why didn't he just say, praise Hashem? Why add servants? Why say Avdeh Hashem? If you're praising Hashem, you're praising Hashem. Why? What's the what's the significance of adding this praising you servants of Hashem? So the Mitzudot says, if one wants to serve Hashem, wants to praise Hashem. Sorry, if one wants to praise Hashem the right way truly praise Hashem rather than praise themselves truly be one of those people that is glad to be in the world that Hashem is ruling over and wants to praise Hashem for his creation 
whether that creation feels good or feels bad that day, whether that creation is clear or unclear. If someone wants to praise Hashem, says the Metsudot, they have to be a servant of God. They have to submit themselves, humble themselves, and say, I'm a servant of God. We'll explain what that means in a moment. But first, the Metsudot says, if you want to praise God, the prerequisite of praising God is being a servant of God. Which means that if you're not a servant of God, and you say, Be'ezrat Hashem, Baruch Hashem, thank Hashem, thank God, all of the things that people say, the Baal Metzudot says, don't say it. You're not really praising Hashem. Praising yourself, figure of speech, you're just saying it for no reason. Why? Why do I have to be a servant of Hashem in order to praise Hashem? Can't I just say thank you? Can I just say he's great, he's amazing, there's nothing else like him? If I'm not really a servant of Hashem? The Metzudot says something shocking. He says, if you praise Hashem and you're a servant of Hashem, that means that you're praising Him for the things you recognize in creation, the things you recognize in your life, both good and bad. You are constantly looking to emulate Hashem, and through your servitude of Hashem, you are falling deeper and deeper in love with Hashem. But if you're not a servant of Hashem, that means that you're not recognizing Hashem's creation, Hashem's oversight of your life to the smallest detail. You're not even grateful for all of the things that Hashem gave you and he most likely are not even recognizing half the things he's giving you right now as we speak. And therefore the Metsudot says, not only do you not praise Hashem the right way, in the eyes of Hashem, you're Rasha. You're wicked. And the verse in Psalms 50 is relevant to you. Which verse in Psalm 50 says the Mitzudot chapter 15, Psalms verse 16. Velarasha amar Elohim, ma lecha lesaper chukai? Kadosh Baruch Hu says, but to the Rasha, to the wicked, God said, to what purpose do you recount my decrees and bear my covenant upon your lips? And he continues and he says, for you hate Musa, you hate discipline. And you threw my words behind you. Meaning what? Well, you're saying thank you now, Baruch Hashem now. Just the other day, something I did to you to test you, and you started questioning God. You started saying bad things about God. You started saying you don't like my Torah anymore. You started saying that you don't really want to pray anymore. You don't feel like it's helping. You Just the other day, I tested you with a small, small tiny little thing. I gave you Panasa $100,000 a year. You lost 5000 
Why? Because I wanted you to lose 5,000 just to see what you do. Instead of saying, Baruch Hashem, maybe it's because I didn't give enough tzedakah, maybe it's because HaKadosh Baruch is testing me for something else. What did you say? Oh, God, why are you doing this to me? All of these other people are making so much more money, and me, I barely make anything, and now you're taking away from me. I prayed. You know what? I don't want to pray today. You know what? I'm not even going to look. What happened? What happened? What happened to you? Kadosh Baruch Hu says, don't say Baruch Hashem. Don't even say Baruch Hashem. Why? It's not real. It's not real. You're not a servant of Hashem. You're a servant of yourself. You only say Baruch Hashem when I give you what you want. Le'avdil, you're treating Kadosh Baruch Hu like he's uh, Santa Claus. Like the Goim treat their false gods. Kadosh Baruch Hu says to such a person, what are you even saying? What are you, what are you recounting? What are you recounting my decrees? You're Rasha, you're wicked. You're wicked. And then, person that does not take this to heart, says, okay, wait, maybe I'm not the greatest servant, but maybe uh, I'm not such a bad person either. Either you're going up and you're becoming a servant of God, or you're becoming a servant of something else. And what happens many times is people that don't take this type of message to heart, the next time they have a test of any kind, instead of realizing that HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants more from us, He wants us to pray better, He wants us to learn better, He wants us to give more, He wants us to give to the right places, and so on and so forth. Instead of doing tshuva, because... She knows that she's not modest. Instead of doing tshuva because he knows he's not making money the right way, the honest way. Instead of doing tshuva because they know they're not learning Torah, at least not the right one, or the right amount, or whatever it is. They figure, listen, maybe we're not servants, but we're not as bad as these other people. Look, this guy drives on Shabbat. That guy is a murderer. This girl is a rapist. That one is a uh, this, this one. Oh, there's all bad people. There's all these bad people. We're not bad like them, at least. And Hashem didn't punish them. So, we're not so bad after all. And in essence, forcing Hashem to settle. Settle with whatever you're willing to give Him. Because He didn't punish the wicked people that you view as more wicked than you. Says David Melech in the same Teilim that the Baal Metzudot is bringing, he says, These have you done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was like you. I will rebuke you and lay it clear before your eyes. Understand this now, you who have forgotten God, lest I tear you to pieces. And there'll be none to rescue you. Akadosh Baruch Hu, let's just say it, doesn't react well to such demand from people that say, yeah, but you didn't punish those other people. So, how am I so bad? Akadosh Baruch Hu says, what? You, you thought that because I didn't punish them, then that means that I agree with your behavior, you being an animal, 
behind closed doors and even outside of them you being a beast you being a wicked person you settling for the fact that you have no desire whatsoever to be my servant so you thought i was like you like i agree with you i agree with your decision because since you're not as bad as the murderers next door and not as bad as the atheist across the street and you're not as bad as the one that's an idol worshiper in the next city over that you know because he calls you every week you're not as bad as all of them so you figured since i didn't punish them in your eyes then therefore i agree with you i'm like you Kadosh Baruch Hu doesn't take that so so uh, so lightly, and he rebukes the person. He says, if a person doesn't get a message, then they have a personal account with a Kadosh Baruch Hu. And you heard what I said. You can read this yourself. This is Teilim. This is Teilim that the Baal Metzudot is bringing. Meaning Rabbi Kalim that. To be a servant of a Kadosh Hu is not necessarily just something that one should aspire to, but rather someone should actually already see it as an obligation, a urgent matter, a highly recommended but in reality needed, not much less than breathing, and quite frankly more, because the Metsudot says that when we're not serving a Kadosh Baruch Hu, we're serving something else. We're serving something else. If it's not him, everyone is serving somebody. About 900 years ago, there was a big Chacham named Rabbi Uda Alevi. And he had a debate, if you will, a discussion, debate with the Kuzari, very famous Sefer, highly recommended for everyone to read. It's very extensive, very elaborate, where this non-Jewish king was searching for the truth. And because he was searching for the truth, Hashem merited him to see certain things. He had a dream where... Hashem sent an angel to him and told him that his will is admirable, is good, but his actions aren't because the way that he's serving the uh, the, 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 the God is not the right way. He's doing it through idolatrous practices and so on. So he searched out to see which is the one true religion because he was smart enough to know that there cannot be multiple true religions and he investigated the three leading religions christianity uh islam and after realizing that they're both full of nonsense he to his surprise had to go into and look into judaism why to his surprise because he saw the jewish people although they were the oldest they were the the the, the, the first one they're mostly poor people you know people that were being abused persecuted not spoken about in a favorable way among society how could this be the leading religion how could this be the one and only truth 
But when he asked Christianity certain questions, they couldn't answer it. And they said, listen, we, uh, we don't have an answer. And he said, well, where did you get the current information that you have? And every time he asked enough questions, eventually he arrived at, listen, we rely on the Jewish information. We rely on the Old Testament, the Torah. He says, yeah, but why would I serve your God through Christianity if you yourself are not the first? You yourself are relying on the Jewish people that you keep murdering, both spiritually and, and physically. Why would I... Well, doesn't make any sense. He went to the Muslims, and the same exact thing happened. He would ask him questions, and he saw that the Muslims were not an original religion. In fact, they, were, they came even after Christianity. About 600 years after Christianity, I believe. And although they call themselves the truth, they call themselves whatever they want. Doesn't mean anything. They rely on the Torah. And even though they say that the Jewish people have changed the Torah, they have to learn how to read the Torah first to know if we changed or we didn't change because certainly their, uh, you know, their, their teachings don't show uh, very much, uh, very much uh, 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 likelihood that this would happen, that they would actually even be able to identify the truth even if it was given to them on a silver platter. But nonetheless, the Kuzari saw that the truth cannot be with the Muslims, it cannot be with the Christians, and he invited a chacham from the Jewish people, Rabbi Yudah Levi. So first, in the first chapter, in section 5, the Kuzari says to the Christian, after asking him certain questions, and he realizes this Christian leader has no answers, no capability of giving answers, and the answers that he is giving defy logic and the kuzari says to the christian logic plays no part in your argument if anything logic dictates the exact opposite in so many words if you want to use logic you cannot be a christian can't be a christian why because their whole religion is illogical they say that everything started from the old testament the very same Torah that the Jewish people believe, the very same Torah that says that the Torah will never change, yet they change everything in the Torah. The very same covenant that God says will never change, they said it changed. The very same Ten Commandments that God obligated us and they say they observe, yet they don't observe them. The very same God that says that he has no body or the likeness of a body, they believe has a body and in fact is part of three different things. All types of nonsensical beliefs the Christians have. He says to believe in Christianity, the Kuzali says, you cannot be a logical person because their religion, their belief system is, defies logic. Now then he goes to the rabbi. He says, what do you believe in? Tell me about your faith. And in chapter 1, section 11, Rabbi Yudah Levi responds to him. And the rabbi says to him, We believe in the God of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, who took the Jews out of Egypt with great wonders and miracles, 
who sustained them in the desert and who gave them the land of Canaan as their inheritance after he split both the Sea of Reeds and the Jordan River. With great miracles, this God sent Moshe Rabbeinu to give his Torah and later he sent thousands of prophets throughout history who exhorted the populace to follow the Torah and who taught about the great reward for those who observe it and a heavy punishment for those who violate it. We believe in everything written in the Torah which contains a massive amount of information. That's the response of the rabbi to the king of what do you believe in? The initial response of the Kuzari will surprise you. Or maybe he won't. And the Kuzari says, Ah, I was correct in my original resolve not to query with a Jew. Because I know that Jews have lost their connection to their past and have no depth of wisdom. This is no doubt the result of their history of destitution and misery, which has left them without any positive characteristics. You, Jew, should have said that you believe in a creator who organized the, uh, organizes and oversees the universe and who created you and sustained you. And any such ideas which are universal to all religions, those ideas are real reasons to pursue truth and emulate the creator's righteousness and wisdom. And not specific miracles you mentioned that happened during isolated periods. Meaning the Kuzari says, listen, you're telling me that your God split the ocean, gave you the Torah, had specific people, this Moses, this Avraham, Isaac, Yaakov, all these, you know, miracles that he did for you guys when I asked you what you believe in. Ah, no, come on, you should have told me. You believe in the God that created the heaven and the earth because that's a universal thing. Everybody could easily believe that. What are you telling me about all these unique miracles and all these different things? Ah, there's something wrong with you Jews. And the rabbi answers the king. What you're referring to is a religion that arrived through logic and analysis. But because it reached through these, it was reached through these means, it's subject to much ambiguity. That's why when you ask philosophers their opinion about religion, you find that they're unable to agree on one proper mode of conduct or on one philosophy. This is because philosophers base their religion on logical arguments, some of which are based on absolute fact, others that are not proven but seem reasonable, and others that are not even intellectually satisfying, let alone based on fact. I, on the other, on the other hand, speak of tangible events as the basis of our religion. And then he continues to tell him, now the, the, the king is more responsive. He goes, oh, your words are starting to make more sense to me now that you start talking and explaining yourself. The Kuzari starts listening to the rabbi, and the rabbi tells him, if I told you that I believe in the God that created the heaven and the earth, in so many words, we're no different than anybody else. But God himself, when he identifies himself in the Torah, does he say in the Ten Commandments or any other place, I am the God that created the heaven and the earth? No. What does he say? I am the God that took you out of Egypt. But isn't creating the world much greater than 
taking a single nation out of Egypt? It seems to be, but not necessarily to everyone. Why? First and foremost, if he's the God that took Am Yisrael to Egypt, how does that obligate the rest of the nations to serve him? If anything, it only obligates the Jews. Secondly, you're saying that you're the God that took us out of Egypt. If you would have said you're the God that created the world, it would seem like you're a bigger God. But then somebody would come along in their clever way and say, wait a minute, who was a witness that you are the God that created the world? What's to say there wasn't a different God that created the world and then he left you in charge? Who is the witness? But if you say, who is to say that you're the one that took us out of Egypt? The answer is millions of people, both Egyptians and Jews alike, that witnessed Hashem take Am Yisrael out of Egypt. Now, aside from the fact that it shows that there is a God that is knows his creation, the Kuzari says that if I was simply to tell you that we have the same universal God, then what's going to distinguish me from everyone else? And in fact, what's going to connect me to my God more than anybody else? If they say they believe in God, and I say I believe in God, and they have their strategy, and I have my strategy, what's the difference? So you see, in our Torah, God tells us that we need to be holy because He is holy. We have to aspire and and work our whole life to be His servants. And a servant emulates His Master by recognizing all of the glorious things that his master is giving him, all of the extraordinary things that he gives him. And you see, I cannot tell you that I'm truly serving my master if I don't constantly recognize what my master has done for me. He put me in not just any family. He put me in the family of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the greatest people of all time. The forefathers. He put me in a place, in a family of people that spoke to him directly. And if that's not enough, he gave us the prophet of all prophet. That's also my family member, Moshe Rabenu. The one that, an only person that spoke to God face to face, like you and I speaking to each other. That's our prophet. It's not the Egyptian prophet. It's not the Muslim prophet. It's not the Christian prophet. It's not anybody else's prophet. It's Am Yisrael's prophet. The humblest man of all time is yet the most extraordinary man of all time. That's one of my forefathers. That's Moshe Rabbeinu. And if that's not enough, you see, unlike any other nation that really is not, is just a nation for today and who knows what's going to happen tomorrow because there's no unity among the nations even within themselves no chinese person truly feels obligated to save a different chinese person in a different part of china that he doesn't know the same thing like no american truly feels obligated or a connection to another american that lives in a different part of the world 
in the same way that a Japanese doesn't connect to another Japanese or Arab connects to another Arab it there is no connection among the nations unless there is a connection if it's a family member if it's a cousin if it's a friend if it's a colleague sometimes you'll feel you'll see that certain people connect but it's not necessarily obligatory and it's not even necessarily common usually people help strangers sometimes they happen to be within the same country in the same neighborhood but not always but see us Jewish people if one of us Jews falls under the vicious law of man that decides to persecute him and they bring him to court because they want to have a legal excuse to kill him every single Jew on planet earth that learns about that situation will somehow get involved somehow contribute somehow cry about it mourn about it pray about it do something about it even though he's never met that jew and even though he most likely will never see that jew but he will feel the pain of that jew why because we are one nation under one god you see that god didn't just create a bunch of nations and we just happen to get along better than everybody else in fact we get along sometimes worse than everybody else among each other but he did make us one he created us as a people that he made us into a nation that whether we like it or don't like it agree with it or disagree with it we are somehow supernaturally united in a most unusual way you can possibly imagine unlike any other nation in the world in fact there could be a jew that hurts somebody that i know or is going to hurt somebody that i care about but if you ask me would i help that jew i wouldn't even think twice before saying yes why we're the same family now you see that's not something that just happens that was already done by the forefathers how they raised their family but even more than that we all suffered in Egypt under the most powerful government in history we're all slaves they were killing all of our family members they were torturing all of us for 210 years we were in this country Egypt to the point where each one of us did not even see ourselves as anything other than servants of man where in addition to the miracles that God brought onto the world with the plagues and splitting of the ocean there was actually a super miracle that had to happen a miracle of miracles and that wasn't a miracle that you saw with the frogs or the blood or the stuff that came out of the sky no that wasn't a miracle that happened in nature that was a miracle that had to happen in each and every single one of our neshamot our souls had to go to a supernatural miracle of miracles hashem had to change creation in order for us to leave egypt because when he told us through moshe rabbeinu it's time to go we had no idea what moshe rabbeinu wants from us what do you mean go we're slaves no no there's the savior i'm the savior and 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 god sent me and you know we're gonna go to the to to, to israel you know there's good stuff there we looked at it what are you talking about we're slaves we were born slaves we're gonna die slaves there is no such thing as 
somewhere else other than being slaves. We work for Paro. That's it. Yeah, but you guys don't realize that he's killing your kids? Yeah, yeah, that's just, you know, stuff that happens. Yep, but you don't realize that he doesn't pay you? Yeah, you know, salary's tough over here. Yeah, but you realize he's not feeding you so much? Yeah, you know, listen, we're, we're okay. Uh, you realize you haven't taken a shower in months? What is that? You realize that even to be with your wife, it's, 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 it's complicated? Listen, I have six kids, probably don't need to be with her. But you realize they're suffering here dearly. I mean, your, 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 your back is still bleeding from this afternoon. Oh, you notice that? When Moshe Rabbeinu came to Am Yisrael, he told them, it's time for you not to be slaves. They had no idea what he's talking about. What do you mean not be slaves? They already got to the point of simply seeing themselves as only slaves of man. And Hashem had to make a super miracle, says Chazal. So you see, when the God that created the world, the heaven and the earth and everything in between and all of the other nations separates forefathers, a group of special people that have descendants, that all suffer, all have to go through extraordinary measure of pain and agony in order to become this unique nation. And then he takes that unique nation in a supernatural way, both in nature as well as within their souls. And then he takes them and miraculously gives them the greatest gift that this world will ever see, called the Torah. The direct connection to him, a way to speak to him, a way to serve him, a way to love him, a way to fear him, a way to be part of him at all times. And he gives it to us. And he even gives us 40 years to study it. And not only that, he gives us all the food so we don't have any distractions. And not only that, he simply doesn't stop giving to us. Every single day, till this day and beyond, you think I'm not going to mention that when you ask me, what do I believe in? If I just told you, I believe in God, then yeah, I'm no different than the idol worshiper. Because his God sometimes works for him. His God sometimes is not even there. His God sometimes is not able to help him. His God sometimes doesn't even know how to read. My God is the King of Kings. My God not only did all that stuff in the past, my God is still doing it now. He's here now watching this conversation. My God is the greatest God of all gods. The least I can do is tell you about him because I constantly think about him. When the Kuzari heard Habiudalevi's description of why he did what he did, why he decided to tell him all these extra details, the Kuzari realized that he is in the road to truth and continued to ask very, very thought out questions 
questions of scholars questions that were so elaborate that they're studied until this day needless to say the answers are necessary required studying for every Jew or anyone that aspires to be a Jew and it's its book called Kuzari that has been translated and printed and published in multiple ways but the key here is that when you realize who the king is in your capacity you also realize the impossibility of truly being a servant of God without recognizing all that he does for you and all that he did for you and all that you need him to do for you and in fact you also realize why it's also impossible to praise him without being a servant because what are you going to praise that he created the world that sometimes you don't want to be in that he created food that sometimes you don't find tasty what are you going to praise him for that's going to distinguish you from all of the other nations that are servants to man and servants to money and servants to themselves and servants to their desires and lusts so the Mitsudot says if you want to praise Hashem the prerequisite to praising him is being a servant now Hashem commands us to be holy because he is holy in essence tells us that he wants us to look like him because he is holy we should be holy in essence telling us that you have to start thinking like him if you want to be a good servant think like God of course we have no capability of even concept of what God's thinking is his thoughts are not like our thoughts but that's why he gave us instructions of certain things that we can do and the first thing that he said is we have to be holy Rashi says being holy means to be holy not just on the things that are permissible eat don't eat and so on but also on the issues of intimacy specifically when it's kosher intimacy with your spouse you have to have holiness there the Ramban says that no no it's not just holiness between him and his wife but you also have to know when that time is and place and not just say oh just because this is allowed that means I need to do it or I should do it lest you become a filthy pig that just eats just because it's kosher or a rooster and mate just because you know your wife is next to you no holiness is a lot more than just doing what's allowed and 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 forsaking what's forbidden but here the Ramban says to achieve this holiness that Hashem is telling you to do the first thing that a person needs to understand and recognizing their Creator is that your servitude of God is your way to connect to God 
meaning you're not serving him because he needs you to but rather you're serving him because that's the way for you to connect to him and therefore your servitude is your way of getting you closer to being that servant that can praise his God now when one serves God they have a certain life pattern when a person does not serve God they're serving their evil inclination they're serving the Yetzirah now there was a Sefer written about 800 years ago called Sefer Hasidim this has nothing to do with the Hasidut of the Baal Shem Tov or anything that came after this preceded all of them by over 400 years Sefer Hasidim I've quoted to you guys in the past it's quoted by Chachamim across all aspects of Torah Alacha you know a Ashkafa Musar Sefer Hasidim is a something uh, that um, is a must read for those that have already covered much of the other foundational ground but certainly it's uh, something that a person needs to delve into from time to time in order to purify their neshama because the unique ideas that the uh, the Chacham has here may not seem like a big deal at first until you delve into them and realize why Chachamim from all spectrums over the last 800 years whether they're from the world of Hasidut or the world of uh, Sfaradim, Ashkenazim, Litaim, whoever quote him not uh, not much less than other sources let's just say that so in chapter 2 of Sefer Hasidim he talks about the passionate love of God because when a person serves Hashem by first starting to recognize all the greatness that Hashem gives him and thereby starts operating and functioning as his or her life based on how they can serve Hashem what is the will of Hashem and not necessarily what is their will and what their desire is it's not too difficult to see that person eventually arriving at the ultimate place which is the love of God and the Sefer Chazidim says our Creator commanded us to serve him with love and it says in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 love God your Lord with all of your heart so that the love of our soul be bound up with him in joy in love and with gladness question is what does this actually mean to love God what does it mean you say love God a lot of people say I love God what do you give him a kiss every day what do you love God you give tzedakah you pray how do you love God do you know what loving God is can you can you write me a, a paragraph more detailed than what the Sefer Hasidim is about to disclose, disclose to us let's see what does loving God feel like the joyous feeling of this love to God is passionate and utterly overpowering in fact a man who has not been with his wife for many days and has a great desire for her 
does not find the moment that he ejaculates as exhilarating as the intensity and power of loving God and finding joy in the Creator. Yes, you heard right. A man that has not seen his wife for a long time, meaning here he doesn't just miss her emotionally, the company, the affection. No, no, he misses also physically. There's a physical reaction as a result of it. This is the climax. This is the ah. Says the Sefer Hasidim. That climatic point does not feel like loving God. The pleasure of loving God is significantly, significantly greater than that feeling. And that feeling is constant. Imagine that. And all of the pleasures of playing with one's children are like nothing compared to the spiritual joy of the man who loves God with all of his heart and soul and might. Which means with all of his thoughts. His love of the Creator must be so great and overwhelming that he becomes lovesick. Like a person who is starved for the affection of a woman and is consumed with love when he sits, rises, goes, and he comes, and when he eats, and when he drinks. His love even robs him of his sleep. The love of the Creator should be far more ardent than this. Speaking of this love of God, Shlomo HaMelech says, I am faint with love. In Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 5. How can a person come to love God and be in awe of Him? When he contemplates the great and wondrous works of God, which are unfathomable and infinite, he immediately loves, praises, and glorifies, and yearns deeply to know that great, revered, and awesome name, David Melech expressed this feeling in the words in Tehilim chapter 42 verse 3, My soul thirsts for God, the living God. In so many words, so long as you love something other than God, you don't love God. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. Alvai, we get to the point of fearing God at the highest level, which is still lower than loving God. But the point is, the next time somebody tells you, no, no, I want to serve God out of love, perhaps you should show him the Sefer Hasidim and tell him, you think you're smarter than him? You think you love God more than him? You think you know more about God than Sefer Hasidim? Because he gave a tiny bit description of what it's supposed to feel like. Last time I checked, when your uh, wife just walked across the hall, you already started drooling. Last time I checked, when she brought you a steak, you drooled over the stake. Last time I checked, when you lost or made a few dollars in the stock market, your horns came out, something. Last time I checked, anything that happens in your life, you get all anxiety, this, that. Last time I checked, you never really told me that you're not sleeping anymore because you love God so much. Are you sure you love God? Come on, stop kidding yourself. You're being silly. Because loving God... It's a different thing. Last time I checked, you're more inclined to have a uh, experience with your body rather than with your soul. And the Sefer Hasidim says 
The ultimate feeling of ecstasy is nothing next to the love of God on a constant level. You sure you love God? Can you define it? Can you tell me how it feels like? You see, Rabotai, the Chachamim did not mix any words or any messages. They were not afraid to tell you the things that anyone could understand in any generation. And you see, they also told us that to be righteous, to be a servant of God, has certain ramifications, certain things that are necessary, certain tools. Where in the section on chapter 25, the Sefer Hasidim says, under the title, In His Image, that God created man in his image. And as long as man does not transgress and does not derive pleasure from gazing at immorality and does not primp to make himself attractive to women and keeps his mind clear from immoral thoughts, then his image above in the heavenly spheres radiates. And as long as this image gleams, no demon is allowed to touch him. But when this person transgresses, his image above does not radiate, and angels of destruction attack him. On one hand, he just told us that loving God feels greater than the greatest orgasm that a person can ever have with the love of his life. On the other hand, he told us that, listen, even if you're not at that point, you can still be a decent, righteous person. And if you are, you're certainly on the path and on the road to getting to maybe one day you'll fall in love with God and actually feel all of that physically. But in the interim, you should know that so long as you're righteous and you're keeping your eyes clean, your mind clean, you're not trying to beautify yourself so you can become some runway model for the, for the clerks at the supermarket in the office whether male or female, you should know, so long as you're righteous, mankind may not be able to see it, but God himself sees. Your neshama gleams. It projects lights everywhere. And if you don't notice that, perhaps it's not projecting. Perhaps it's accepting the horrors from the destructive angels that you're creating from sins. The Sefer Chassidim says that when a person does not sanctify themselves, tries to become a servant of Hashem, certainly it's, there is no neutral. If you're not serving God, you're serving something else. And he says under the section of true piety, where he brings Psalm 19 verse 10, about the fear of God being pure. He says the verse is referring to the kind of fear and reverence that is beyond doubt. What is this beyond doubt? It's the kind of fear shown to, by a person who has an opportunity to sin in a situation where no one sees him. And he does not run the risk of being embarrassed, yet he refrains from sinning because he fears God. Such a person exemplifies true piety. 
So a person could literally be on a path of righteousness and have this fear of God. And the way you know if you have fear of God is if you're sinning in private. Because no one's looking, then of course you don't have any fear of God. If you're not sinning in public, it just means you're not an animal. Because if you're sinning in public too, then simply that means that you're no different than some beast. You should put yourself on a Discovery Channel, perhaps... They could film you and make a movie out of you of some kind. Maybe we'll use your BH films. If you're sinning in public, you're simply animalistic to the point where there's not much that can be helped aside from you helping yourself and rescuing yourself from the genome that you're creating for yourself. If you're immoral, if you're active sexually outside with somebody, even if it's your wife, there's literally the difference between you, between you and a dog is not favorable. The dog is actually more modest than you because he's supposed to be that way. But if your sins are only behind closed doors, it doesn't mean you're righteous. It just means you're not an animal outright. But you have work to do if you want to say that you have Yigat Shemayim, that you have fear of the Almighty. Now, if you have control of yourself and you're not sinning in public and you're not sinning even in private and you want to know, do I have Yigat Shemayim? The Sefer Hasidim says, yeah, it's very simple to check. Next time, the Yetzirah comes, and he says, yeah, let's go. We got something to do. Turn on this channel. Turn on this video. Press play here. Press play there. And no one can discover, no one can know that you are ever going to sin. Not your wife, not your husband, not your this and not your that. No one will ever know that you sin. And you say, no, I am holy because God is holy. God is holy and told me I have to be holy. So I am holy because God is holy. I am only doing it not because I don't have a desire. I'm doing it because I'm trying to connect to God. I'm not sinning, not because I don't want to sin. I'm not sinning because I want to connect to God. If you do that, that already means you have some fear of heaven. The greater the tests, the greater indication of how strong your fear of heaven is. And the more progress you have gained on that road to eventually loving God. And loving God, Rabotai, is a very, very big deal. On the other hand, when a person doesn't care about anything I just said, then they're going to say, what does this have to do with Jewish intimacy? Which means they missed the whole point. You see, Jewish intimacy is not just some animalistic act that finishes at the climatic points of one of the parties sometimes two and thereby becomes holy jewish intimacy for it to even exist in the same chambers of holiness that a kadosh wanted to we have to desire it we have to desire holy intimacy by desiring to be holy which is only possible if we know how to praise god which itself is only possible if we have made ourselves into the servants of god because if we didn't make ourselves into the servants of god 
because we didn't praise God, because we didn't even have time to recognize what he did, then what ends up happening is that we end up serving the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah that gives us all types of ideas. As Shlomo HaMelech says in Kohelet, chapter 4, verse number 13, Tov yeled misken vechacham mimelech zakenu ksil. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old and foolish king. One of the great mashgichim in the previous generation said to one of his talmidim that told him, Rabbi, I don't know what to do. I got all these desires. I'm trying to control it. I don't want to waste this and I don't want to waste that, but it keeps coming and I'm young and and, and I have all these ideas and, and I'm trying to do tshuva and sometimes I fail and what do I do? And the Mashkiach says to him, I understand your Yetzirah seems like he's big. I understand your Yetzirah seems like he's powerful. I understand your Yetzirah seems like he's smart. And he's right. He's right. And if it's not for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Gemara says that there's no way for you to overcome the Yetzirah. How is that helping me, Rabbi? You see, the Yetzirah is not going to stop being powerful just because you don't want him to be powerful. The Yetzirah is not going to become stupid just because you want him to be stupid and he's not going to become anything you want him to become just because you want him to become that way. You have to overcome it. Step number one of overcoming the Yetzirah. Don't make him into a king over you. Don't make him a king over you where you simply obey all of his commandments. Where the second that he tells you, Yalla, let's do it, you run after it. The second he gives you a bad thought, Yalla, let's go after it. The second he gives you a doubt, you automatically believe it. The second the rabbi says something you don't like, right away you run away. The second you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, right away he says, nah, no, you have busy. And right away you follow. Don't make him a king over you at least. Give a fight. Even if you fail, even if you end up doing it five minutes later, ten minutes later, a day later, a week later, and guess what? At least he's not a king over you. Where you're just following whatever he says. At least you're going to be in that conversation where when HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, who are my holy children? You're still in the conversation. Perhaps you're falling for that Yetzirah. But you still consider that wise youth that's fighting him. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says better. Better my wise youth over that foolish king. Who is that foolish king? That foolish king is the Yetzirah. He is the king because many people listen to him instead of listening to God. And he's foolish because he teaches them evil. Don't be that person that falls for the foolish king to such an extent that you've made him a king over you. If you want to serve God, don't expect it to be easy. It's going to be difficult. And in fact, if you want to serve God in the highest level possible, which is through loving God, so much that your love of God feels better than any physical thing you can ever imagine. Physical 
not mental, not spiritual, physically feeling this. Needless to say, spiritual, mental, and everything else. The love of God feels, feels better than anything else in the world. It's not a state of mind. It's not a belief. It's a feeling. It's something that you actually can grasp in such a way if you have it. Now, perhaps you can't get there today or even tomorrow. But at the very least, don't fall in love with the Yetzirah that says, Ah, this is not for you. And you listen to him. Don't be his servant. Try. Now, it may seem like this path to holiness between one and his spouse unattainable for some people at this point. But I promise you this, if you will, if you will, you desire to do the will of Hashem, even if you don't arrive at the ultimate destination, that is the ultimate love of God, expressed during the intimacy of your relationship with your spouse, making the physical, spiritual, mental, and every other feeling that could possibly exist in this world something exponentially higher than anything you could imagine even if you took all the drugs in the world together. So even if you don't arrive at that point, I could assure you, everything will improve nonetheless. Everything will improve nonetheless where you may not reach the stars but landing on the clouds is not so bad after all. The other option? People could remain in the dirt and call it life. Yiratzon, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will give each and every single one of us the merit, the willpower, the strength, and the desire to do His will like He wants us to. To want it as much as he, he wants us to. And Be'ezot Hashem, we succeed in not only being Jewish and being intimate, but actually understanding and fulfilling the mitzvah of Jewish intimacy in the same exact way as HaKadosh Baruch Hu allows us to in this world through Kedusha and through serving Him. Baruch Adonai Amen v'amen.